You're listening to a Comics XF podcast. And welcome to this week's episode of Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast, where each week my co-host Will Nevin and I dig into three Batman stories, discuss them, and rank them on the big board, thus creating a giant list of Batman stories from best to worst. So, Will, how's it going? I'm Adam. Ah, oh, wait. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's that's okay. I I guess Will couldn't make it this week. Uh, so fortunately, we got it. We got a guest. It is writer of Comics XF, artist extraordinaire, and co-host of Battle of the Atom, another Comics XF podcast that has absolutely nothing in common with this one. Correct, <laughs> Adam. How the heck are you tonight, Matt? Thank you so much for having me on. It is always strange when I think I'm doing one show and it turns out that I'm doing another, but look, both of our shows have the word bat in them. It just so happens that my show is about X-Men and not actual Batman. So I am excited to talk about all the Batman tonight. We're, we're glad to have <laughs> you. Um, but you know, seriously, for those out there, in case you don't listen to any of the other CXF podcasts, and I don't know why you wouldn't because they're all great, this week, each of the shows are swapping hosts. So Will is heading over to WMQ&A to hang out with Dan. And since we've got three shows and five hosts, because I'm the maniac who does two a week, the truly wonderful and amazing Dr. Anna Papard will be over with Zach over on Battle of the Atom. Yes, my one and only will be there. Though, uh, listeners, if when's this episode coming out, Matt? This coming this, week? No, no. We record way in advance. So this okay. will be the week of your episode. We're all hitting the same week. This will be the week that your episode drops on the 13th. WMQ drops mm -hmm. on the 14th, and we'll hit on the 16th. Oh, okay. Wow. So we're a while ahead. Yeah, we record about a month out. That it, is amazing because when we record Battle of the Atom, we record less than a week out. So the, you're way ahead of us. WMQ is a week. Uh, there are times I, I wish we were a little closer to where we were to be a little more agile when there's news, but we recorded a bunch before we started. And we've yeah. only missed a week or two in there. So it's... You have that head start. You got yeah. that runway. Yeah, exactly. I've, it, it has helped the you know, occasional time. It's like, yeah, I really need a vacation. Because two <laughs> podcasts a week, it's a lot of friggin' work. Yeah, man. I mean, even just having one for me is enough. So uh, props to you. I am very grateful to have two very forgiving partners who are both... <laughs> like, yes. You you do your podcast. We we accept freely that this will take up two of your nights of the week. And nice. I am very grateful for both of them. And especially because I should probably say, as last week, the bat chat that you listened to, everyone out there, I wished my lovely wife a happy wedding anniversary on the day we mm -hmm. were recording. Tonight, I'm wishing my lovely wife a happy birthday, as it is Amber's oh, birthday. Yep. Happy birthday, Amber. Last night, we went out, we celebrated both of our birthdays and our wedding anniversary that fall in the course of eight days. 
Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, Jeez. Well, when our, both of our birthdays were there already, we were kind of like, let's just do the, the wedding and we can take a week off and take trips sometimes when we hadn't just had half of our house restuccoed, <laughs> which is very pricey. May I ask? Um, sure. Yeah, most home improvements are. So uh, I can totally understand that. But I'm glad you got a chance to get out and celebrate. That sounds fun. Yeah, last night we got out. We went to see Reese Darby. He was Ooh. doing it at night at the, uh, the Keswick Theater right across in the Philly suburbs. It was fascinating in that he's, I guess, theoretically a stand-up. Mm -hmm. But it's more storytelling, performance, art, comedy, because a 90-minute set was like six jokes that just each one oh, just kind of kept going. <laughs> this long, elaborate thing. It was it was phenomenal. But I was like, huh, I don't know if that's stand-up in the strictest mm. sense of the word. It sounds it, closer to like going to see David Sedaris at a like a book signing. <laughs> yes. Sedaris would come to the McCarter in Princeton where I worked and he came every year and I saw him every year and it was always a hoot. Oh, he's great. He's absolutely wonderful. But we are not here to speak on comedy tonight. Uh, we are here <laughs> to talk about Batman. And so, Adam, as a first-time guest, uh, let yeah. me ask you the question that we always ask our first-time guests. Uh, what, mm -hmm. what are your earliest memories and introduction to Batman as a character? Okay, so earliest memories are probably of the Adam West TV show. I'm a child of the 80s, so a lot of the after-school entertainment was, you know, the older shows from you know, past decades, because there really wasn't enough content to fill these these hours, right? I'd end up watching like Nick at Night or, you know, I, I remember like coming home. It's just so strange to think about that, like, because of what my daughter watches, right, on like streaming media now. But like, I would come home from elementary school and watch like Hogan's Heroes, you know, <laughs> it's like, what a weird show. So definitely remember Adam West, Batman being really into that. Um, and then, of course, the animated series when uh, when that dropped, that was like a huge deal because um, that was around the same time as the X-Men animated series. I was really passionate about videotaping both of those shows and going back and rewatching them, because if I recall correctly, like when they first started to come on, they weren't in order. Like sometimes they would have like a cliffhanger and then the next episode that aired wouldn't be the next episode. So sometimes I had to kind of string them together myself. Now, in terms of comics, I was always a Marvel guy. So, you know, as, as listeners to battle the Adam, know, I'm, I've been an X-Men guy my whole life. Batman was never somebody that I, I truly invested in. Um, so I have kind of like the, like bestsellers, I guess. Like I've read year one, I've read Dark Knight Returns, um, you know, some of the Snyder and Capullo stuff, uh, some Morrison stuff. Like if it's something that was a bestseller, I've probably either like read it or paged through it. But as an invested Batman reader, that's that's never been my thing. So this was a really exciting homework assignment for me. Because we decided as a avid listener of Battle of the Atom, which format did not at all inspire the format. Of the show. Not, <laughs> don't not worry, we still, the format, we still our format too, so don't worry about it. In, in the immortal words of Krusty the Clown, if you're not Steve Allen, you're stealing my bit. Love it. So true. Uh, 
I figured when sitting back and knowing that I was going to have Adam on the show, I thought about creators that Adam had talked about on Battle of the Atom, that's mm-hmm. work that he enjoyed. And so I found Batman stories by some of those creators. And of course, as I'm listening to, I think it was even this week's Boda, I was like, oh, well, there could have been that story. And more of them kept coming into my head. But I thought this, the ones I went with were some more dark horse choices. Like I didn't sure. do any of, I mean, there are a couple of Claremont stories that have Batman in them, but they're okay. Justice League stories. Oh, and they're not yeah. really, Batman is not the main, even Justice Leaguer in those stories. Does that disqualify it from being covered on this show? No, no, no. We've no. covered okay. we, the episode that will be dropping tomorrow as we mm-hmm. record. So a month ago is another of our Comics XF cohort, uh, Austin Gorton, coming on. Specifically, oh, Austin. Yeah, specifically to talk about Batman on team. So oh, fun. Batman and the Outsider story, a Justice League mm-hmm. story. And the Silver Age story that introduced the Batman of all nations who became the Club of Heroes in the Morrison run. So we've done nice. we've done Justice League stories, but I was like, th- these are a little more Batman-y and a, at least a couple of them are not what you normally get. Sure. One of them is very much a superhero story, but the other two are different. And one of them particularly so. So yes. I'm... I'm excited to to go over those. No, these are fun picks. So uh, I'm excited to get into it because I guess the only other experience that I have with Batman is like, and I, I guess this is something they just announced recently they're bringing back is like, I would read the occasional Elseworld story. Batman's a vampire or steampunk Batman or whatever it was, you know? And like, I remember picking a lot of those up. Um, so it was fun to read these because they were very kind of contained. So I appreciate that. Glad to hear it. And why don't we get started? <laughs> uh, our first story of the night is Hot House. This mm. is Batman Legends of the Dark Knight, issues 42 and 43. The writer is John Francis Moore, with pencils and inks by P. Craig Russell, colors by Laverne Nzirsky, letters by Bill Pearson, and edited by Archie Goodwin and Bill Kaplan. The cover dates are February to March of 1993. The death of a regent at Gotham University brings Batman into contact with Pamela Isley, the former Poison Ivy. Or is she so former? Batman finds a spiral of deceit, drugs, obsession, and murder as he tries to prove Ivy's innocence. John Francis Moore was the writer of the entirety of X-Men 2099? Did he bow yeah. out for the last arc? I couldn't remember because I know Peter David I, bows out mm-hmm. at the very end of Spider-Man 2099, I couldn't remember if more bowed out on like the last arc of X-Men. I've read them all, but uh, it's been a while. I would have to go back and check. There is famously, oh, you know what? No, he does write the entire X-Men 2099, but famously the editor of the 2099 entire series of books was let go and all of the writers quit in protest. But X-Men 2099, if I remember correctly, was already over by then. So they were starting kind of the next book. And then those creators walked away. But we are big fans of John Francis Moore's X-Men 2099, a frankly ridiculous book uh, on Battle of the Atom. And um, it was really fun to read his Batman here um, because this is a much more grounded story than I'm used to reading of his. Even his X-Force 
there's bits of it uh-huh. the, the road trip era that arc is a little more grounded but then you get you know rainfire and deviance and yep. it gets wild pete wisdom and his eye patch of love yeah um he does have a tendency to be very strange in in his choices and he also has I find a really wicked sense of humor, uh, loves a good pun and, you know, is just not afraid to do some really wacky things for for a chuckle in a comic book. This didn't strike me as a book that was this hothouse uh, two-parter doesn't strike me as something that's going for that vibe or that energy, but it is a very, very beautiful pair of issues, especially because He's paired up with P. Craig Russell, who's doing absolutely gorgeous artwork here. I love P. Craig Russell. His his work, he's known for doing adaptations of opera. He did Hmm. uh, Wagner's Ring Cycle. He did some of Oscar Wilde's work. Okay. But the thing that he's probably most famous for, and this might be... There might be people who are more informed on Russell's work in general. But the thing I know him most for is one particular issue of Sandman. He did oh, issue okay. 50, Ramadan, which mm. is the story of, of Baghdad of the Golden Age. That is this city of dreams, beautiful city. And Dream encountering the ruler of the city. And it's it's just, it's a stunning issue. And as I recall, was the only issue of Sandman not written full script. Gaiman let Russell really breathe on that issue. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. You know, if you look through his uh, DC work, you know, he's, he's done a a few of, you know, these little Batman things here and there. um, And then he's done some Sandman, but you know, his comics work isn't, the big part of his career doesn't look like, you know, I looked through his Marvel uh, bibliography and really the only thing I found was mostly some pinups that he got hired to do for the Marvel swimsuit specials, which I do remember, like they are very memorable pieces, but you know, it's great to see him doing these interiors here because they're absolutely wonderful. His art, it's not as cheesecakey as a Milo Manara, but it has that European sort of flavor to it. Sure. Yeah. There's sort of a, an art nouveau kind of quality to the way he is drawing the foliage and the, the leaves twining together. Like the fact that they got him for this story, which centers around poison Ivy, it works very, very well, especially as the story reaches its climax. And the first issue even more so than the second is flat out noir. It yeah. Opens with this regent of the university jumping to his death from a building and Ivy's there and Batman suspects Ivy, of course. But then it turns out that the whole thing is involved a drug that Ivy's developed that she's more or less been blackmailed into providing and her pitting Batman against the drug dealers. And of course, it turning out that she is the one who's been manipulating him despite having, quote unquote, been reformed. Mm-hmm. The second issue becomes a little more superhero-y yeah. as Batman, you know, now is a little bit detective at the beginning as he's trying to figure out if Ivy's really reformed or not. But then by the end, you get a, a the last third of the issue pretty much is a 
extended fight scene between Batman and someone that Ivy is drugged up. Yep. And still stunning throughout. Yeah. Uh, the the action is really, really fluid. You get a really great sense of where Batman is at all times. There's a lot of artists who take backgrounds for granted, for instance, and this is not an artist who does that. So from the very offset, when we're watching you know, this sort of outdoor celebration and everybody's looking up at this guy who's going to jump off the roof, you always have a sense of space. There's this really interesting scene when the when the book starts where Batman is basically in broad daylight now, right? Because Bruce had to change into Batman real quick. And everybody's kind of like, oh, geez, never seen this guy in, outside of like a dark night before. And that kind of stuff really, really works. So I, I enjoyed this quite a bit. Recurring panel throughout this tight look at Ivy and very much pulling in on her lips. Mm-hmm. And it's one of those things that you just see and it has this impact because Batman's narration throughout this has a lot of comments on sense memory, on mm-hmm. smell and how it brings that back. And so each encounter with Ivy and that shot in her lips is again, his mind sort of rolling back to that. Yeah. There's that cinematic quality of that shot and the repeat of it is really, really smart, you know, because throughout these two issues, Batman refuses to believe that he's under poison Ivy's influence because he believes that she is reformed, but he doesn't realize that he believes that because he's under her spell. So that, you know, recurring image is really, really smart in showing just how hypnotized he is. And this, for those of you out there who are readers who've come to comics in the past 20, 25-ish years, this mm-hmm. is not the Poison Ivy you're used to. The sure. Ivy of comics now, the eco-terrorist Ivy, the very queer Ivy was a product of Batman, the animated series. Mm -hmm. Ivy had a little bit of the eco-terrorist in there, mostly thanks to her post-crisis origin from Neil Gaiman. Mm -hmm. But the Ivy of the silver into the bronze age was very much the seductress. Mm -hmm. And this is very much that Ivy. I mean, Ivy still does that because that's part of her thing. The ability to paraphrase the shadow to cloud men's minds. But now it's for a purpose of, you know, the planet. Back in the day, it was, that's what she did. Right. And there's a big difference, I think, between the modern incarnation of the character because she needs to be a protagonist. You know, she needs to be able to hold her own and or have a book with Harley or whatever it is. Here, she is very, very strictly the antagonist of this story. So it's all from Batman's perspective. It's not that she's not fully fledged. She is a fully formed character here, but she's there to be the villain um, as opposed to, you know, having her own agency and her own motivations. I also wonder, this is one of those sort of questions about artistic vision and things. So many Ivy stories from this era into today are so male gazy because Ivy mm. is a seductress. Mm-hmm. Russell was one of the first comic book artists to be openly gay. Okay. So I wonder if there might be something there that he's not drawn into that male gaziness. And while Ivy is still 
gorgeous and sexy. It's not in a male gaze the, the way you would get from another comic artist drawing in 1993. Well, yeah, that is something that's really refreshing about this is that it's not even in the same style universe as what most comics were looking like at this time. It has a, you know, a real classics quality to it. Even the fashion of the characters really is not necessarily of the time per se, you know, there's sort of a nineties quality to kind of like the blouses and the pleated pants that these characters are wearing, but it really could be a variety of other times as well. You know, I think the only thing that really kind of ties it to the nineties present is the idea of sort of the drug ring drug dealing aspect of the story. If you had changed this up, like you mentioned, this is a very noir story really could exist in a, in a variety of different time periods. So I think that's to its advantage. To your earlier point about, you know, the male gaze on Ivy, obviously she's still very beautiful and, and sexy, but it's not done at the character's expense, you know, which unfortunately at that time, and even still to today, you see a lot of. So everybody looks beautiful in this book, but you're not getting anything salacious. Russell's characters in general are life. Even Batman, mm -hmm. who's so big, is not muscled like a Frank Miller character no. or nope. any number of other artists. The Bat titles of this era tended to stick to a fairly house style. They never got imagey. Mm -hmm. Because you had the same artists on the Bat books from the late, mid to late 80s through the early 90s. Okay. It was uh, Norm Bray Fogle and Jim Aparo, who, and I mean, Aparo had been doing Batman regularly since the 70s, depending mm -hmm. on the book. Mm -hmm. So it's not like Bat titles ever had that sort of style. And even then, when you get out of this era of those guys, you get Mike Manley and Brett Blevins, and okay. Graham Nolan. And then it gets weird when you get Kelly Jones doing a run on a monthly Bat title for a while. Mm -hmm. But Bat titles never got... There was... And DC in general, much less so than Marvel, was never as imagey. Mm -hmm. But Legends, as our listeners generally probably know, because we've talked about it, but you might... Legends of the Dark Knight was designed to be a boutique book. Every arc was a different writer and artist doing mm -hmm. something different and spotlighty. So you had some absolutely fascinating combinations of creators who might not do a monthly bat title, but could come on and be like, hey, let's get Grant Morrison and Klaus Jansen to do a five-parter. Nice. Yeah, that the second arc was Morrison's second Batman book, right oh, after Arkham Asylum. Uh, That's great. Denny O'Neill would come once a year or so and do an arc because he was mm -hmm. group editor of the main Bat titles, but Archie Goodwin was the editor on Legends. So I think DC had that same rule where you couldn't edit yourself. Okay. So Denny would come over here and do an arc. But you had, I mean, Doug mentioned Paul Glacey of Shang-Chi fame did a couple of arcs. Because Mensch was a, a was writing Batman at this time and wrote Batman from ninety one ninety two to ninety eight, 
Okay. I mean, Mench had a long and did it. That was his like second run on Batman. Mm-hmm. He did a lot of Batman over the years, but we've done a lot of Legends of the Dark Knight because you get these bizarre teams of creators that you sometimes wouldn't think of as bat creators. Batman's a character where I'm sure most creators was like, hey, you want to come and do a Batman story? Well, yeah. I mean, that's what's great about this book, right? Is you could say, hey, who who's out there that wants to tell a bat story? And, you know, here, how many how many issues do you need? Let's pair you up with somebody who's amazing and let's just do this. Cause for folks who are like me, who might not want something that's like super heavy on continuity. This is perfect. I have a general idea of who these characters are, and I found this to be deeply entertaining. And it also mostly did not take place in continuity with the other Bat books. Occasionally, there'd be a crossover that would cross through the line, but mostly it was self-contained often set around the year one, year two era. So there wasn't Mm -hmm. a ton of continuity before that. This is a year one story or post year one because Gordon is captain, but he's not commissioner yet. So you're not into year. It's somewhere in that year one and a half to two area where he's captain Gordon. And you also don't really need to worry about that. You know, yeah. you could just kind of kick your feet up and and enjoy uh, where this is going. So of the three we're going to talk about today, this this was probably my favorite. I just thought it was extremely clear. Um, I thought the art was absolutely gorgeous and uh, I really enjoyed reading it. Now, I've been told that, you know, due to my bat naivete, I will not be ranking today. So bat fans in the audience just please relax. I will not be screwing up your your uh, big board by my presence. I promise. Nope. Meanwhile, elsewhere in <laughs> Gotham City, it's time to put Hot House on the big board. We've got 324 stories on the big board. Number one is the post-crisis origin of Batman, Batman Year One. Number 50 is A Savage Innocence, the story where the Joker gets the power of the Spectre. And hey, I'm back for a bit. Coming in a sexy 69, it's Batman 588 and 590, closed before striking. Yeah, thought you would be rid of me. (laughs) At 100 is My Own Worst Enemy, the first arc of Scott Snyder's All-Star Batman. At 150 is The First Batman, the story of Thomas Wayne as Batman. 200 is Heart of Hush. 250 is Leaves of Grass, the story where the Florotic Man grows his body out of weed. And hey, still at the bottom, still the worst of the worst, it's Curse of the White Knight. To me, first of all, let me say, Adam did a great job, unless he didn't. I think this thing really fell apart in the second half. The The plot wasn't as strong. And if you have Ivy as perhaps being reformed the entire time, and then in actuality, she wasn't. Like, where did this story go? And I couldn't stop thinking about how I, I'm not sure whether uh, the writer quite understood what a university regent is and what a typical regent does. That's just a board of trustees member. Like they're not going to be on the faculty. Anyway, 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 
What did you think about it, Matthew? I think the first half was an excellent noir. Yes. Up to your femme fatale, the, the wheels within wheels. And then it sort of becomes a superhero story in the back half. And I think it probably could have maintained that noiriness deeper into the story. You know, I had a real strange thought as I was reading it. I think if you cut it off at the very first chapter, right now, this is broken into like, what, 11, 13, 15 chapters, however many it is. If you break it off at the first chapter, it's a pretty goddamn good short. Yeah. We just uh, going through those, what we go through for the increments. 250 is Leaves of Grass, another Ivy story. This is better than Leaves of Grass. Oh, oh, is it ever? I mean, this is still pre-Batman the Animated Series altering Ivy as a character. She is still more about being the femme fatale than the eco-warrior at this point. So we have to look at it that way. Ivy pining after a man is sure is strange. Exactly. And that was a big part of her character until Batman the Animated Series changed her. She was obsessed with Batman in her her appearances through the the mid-90s. Let's see what else we have Ivy-wise on here. Everyone loves Ivy. The Tom King story is up at 208. This is better than that. Yeah. This one might not understand what a university region is, but that one doesn't understand that just because you're a psychologist doesn't mean you can do neurosurgery. Yeah. Harley is a psychologist, not a psychiatrist. She does not necessarily even have a medical degree. Of course, that was something that was nobody was sure which she was until the most recent uh, Infinite Frontier era series actually put it on the page that she is a psychologist. There was a lot of back and forth about which she was before that. All right, so let's keep heading up. I'd be loath to put this above Blades at 195, but that's that's me. I mean, that that Blades is a soft target for me. Well, I mean, I would not put this above Clown at Midnight at 194. So, I mean, that that's a spot that works. Yeah. Credit here, the art is gorgeous. P. Craig Russell is just a master craftsman. And the, the use of the vines, the hallucinatory sequence, it's really nice looking. How about we just kind of split this difference and say 200? You know, I was looking right at it, and I agree. The new 200 Hothouse. Well, thanks for popping back by for a minute, Will. And now, back with Adam. <laughs> and it's time to move on to our second story. Our second story is Terminus. Ooh. This is Legends of the Dark Knight, number 64. The writer is Jamie Delano, with pencils by... Now, we're going to break for, for a second here. I've always pronounced this Bacallo. But ah. is it pronounced? I've heard it's it's Bacalo. All right, so I believe it's Bacalo. Bacalo. I I know it's a cha, but okay. I think even though he is one of our absolute favorite artists, <laughs> we do we do tend to go back and forth between Bacalo and Bacalo. 
depending on like where we put the emphasis on the syllable, but I believe it's Pachalo. Okay. Pencils by Chris Pachalo. It's by Mark Pennington. Colors by Digital Chameleon. Letters by John Workman and edited by Archie Goodwin and Jim Spivey. The cover date is September of 1994. Notable. I'll get into why. (laughs) Small-time user turned murderer. Studs finally crossed the line when he killed his dealer. Pursued by Batman, he finds his way to the Terminus Hotel, a rundown dive that has a dark and twisted mind of its own. This, again, very specifically picked because I know how big a fan of Bacillo's work Adam is. Huge Chris Bacillo fan. Uh, I have a piece of original art of his that hangs over my computer in my office every day from uh, his book Witching Hour with Jeff Loeb, which I I was a huge fan of growing up. I just have to say this is actually a a double whammy, and I didn't realize this until I, I, I went back, but it's not just Chris. Janie Delano, for any X fans listening, is responsible for uh, a really substantial run of Captain Britain. Yes. And Captain Britain Volume 2. So for fans of that character and Excalibur, uh, Delano is, is definitely a key figure in the development there. But what's crazy to me about this book even existing is the fact that it comes out the exact same month as generation x number one so i was kind of blown away by that i had to go back because i was looking to see you know obviously one of chris's like biggest transformations as an artist is when he's working on vertigo's uh shade the changing man and this is done this is clearly illustrated kind of in between those two periods of time this is definitely a, a chris and mark book i would say it's still maybe a step below where he ends up on that first run of gen x but it's still pretty dang good like he's hanging on to a lot of his little vertigo things here and uh it's it's great and we are for frame of reference as well four months after the end of his work with Cayman on uh that's the high cost of living that was early 93 i had read this it's funny because i'd read this story i'd read generation x before that but High cost of living, because again, for our listeners out there, Gaiman is one of my you know pantheon of the greats. I Sandman, mm-hmm. I own Sandman in more formats than I am willing to admit. <laughs> um, no shame in that, okay? I I tracked down all of those floppies years and years ago mm-hmm. before the you know the TV show made them exceedingly expensive when they were only just mildly expensive. You gotta love that speculator market, Matt. Oh, yeah. But having read this, and I mean, his he did early Sandman, too. He did one issue in the first year and a half, in the okay. second arc. But it, it's not as distinctly Bacillo as Shade the Changing Man and other things are. But I really wanted to go back and revisit this particular issue. Because I read this when it first came out, when mm-hmm. I would have been... This was mid-93, because cover date of September, so we're a couple months before that. So I was 12. Guess what? I didn't get this. This was not a story Mm. that was something that was meant for a 12-year-old to to be reading. At the same time as we're coming right out of the end of the Night Trilogy, Nightfall, Night's Quest, Night End. 
Sure, sure. I got that wrong. Nightfall, Night Quest, Night's End. <laughs> but mm-hmm. yeah, so, you know, very traditional superhero-y stuff. And occasionally you'd get a Legends of the Dark Knight arc that was strange and that wasn't a traditional superhero story. But this, this is a Vertigo comic. It feels that way. It is very much a horror story in that you're not sure who your narrator is throughout this. You know, I think you're led to believe that you're you're supposed to maybe think it's Batman or, you know, maybe somebody inside the Terminus Hotel. But when you get to realize that it is probably the hotel itself as the narrator and that there is a supernatural quality to what is happening to its sort of dead end guests, uh, it, it has a real spooky quality to it, which I really like. This was my favorite of the night because I mm. lo- I'm a horror guy to begin with. Mm-hmm. And this feels like 90s vertigo to me, which yeah. makes sense as Delano, aside from writing a whole bunch of vertigo miniseries over the years, wrote most of the first 40 issues of Hellblazer. He was Oh, I the, didn't know that. That's yeah. interesting. That he, makes a lot of sense. There's an arc or two in there he didn't do, a couple of mm-hmm. couple one-offs, but he wrote Hellblazer from 1 to 40, and then Garth Ennis takes over from there. But okay. his Hellblazer was a very political book, very mm-hmm. much in response to Thatcher. And you read the first arc, Original Sins, and they're a whole bunch of sort of loosely connected one-offs, and they're all very much a response to England at the time. And while mm-hmm. this isn't quite as timely, this is very much one of these one-off horror pieces. Yeah. And it's got a Twilight zone kind of thing, this sort of anthology of you get into the hotel and you start to see, as you call the dead-end guests, you see the stories of each of these people and how they wound up. And it's got that Hotel California, you can oh, sure. check out anytime, but you can never leave yep. vibe to it that you get very clear at the end. And I don't want to spoil it too much or spoil a, what, 30-year-old comic, but it's a 30-year-old comic I'd wager most of you haven't read. I am a huge fan of Chris's work and pride myself on trying to at least have a, a large idea of what his career is like. One of the things that I'm I'm really proud of is that uh, Karen Charm and I did a, a primer for Comics XF about his career. And this was something that I don't even think was on our list, honestly. So this was a really fun surprise. I will say, I think one of the things that knocks it down a notch for me is... What I would love, and I don't know if this has ever been able to be, you know, published anywhere, but I would love to see a black and white version of this issue. Because to me, I think the colors by Digital Chameleon take away from the darkness of this story. Chris is very much using him and and, uh, Mark Pennington are using that kind of of the time vertigo line quality that he's developed of sort of these twisty things that almost have kind of a Tim Burton-esque quality to them, depending on what he's drawing. And unfortunately, I think the colors make everything happening in the Terminus look a lot brighter than they probably would if the book was in black and white and we were kind of imagining what those tones might be. 
I think it would give it a better sort of darker quality to this story that would make it even scarier. You know, this whole idea of of studs kind of shooting up and imagining fire. And then, you know, is the fire that we see later in the story, is it real? Is it, there's this push and pull between the reality and, and what's actually happening that is really, really interesting. You know, it's, it's, it's fantastic. This is still in that very early digital colors period. And they, I've seen this with Will, who didn't start reading comics until the 20 teens. So he's so used to digital colors and people knowing how to use them better. And he comments on it and is like, yeah, that's because they've been using digital colors for like a year at the point mm-hmm. of some of these books that we've talked about. And I think yeah. if this had been a little later, they would have known to ratchet that back a little and not saturate the colors as much. I also think if Bachelor went was a little more in his Generation X period, mm-hmm. I wager we would have seen the fire in the gutters and the borders oh, yeah. sort of throughout. Because I yep. think about some of those Gen X issues with the frogs invading the the panel layouts. And it made me think of that when we saw the first time the fire shows up and it starts to sort of invade the page. I was like, oh, are we going to get a, a Generation X frogs thing here? And it's like, no, it's just pops off on certain pages. Yeah, it's interesting how he plays with the flames and how they grow over the course of the issue, which, you know, there's something very interesting that he does. Like you said, he's he plays a lot in the years after this with border work and symbols of, of animals or, you know, ribbons, scarves, things that kind of pass across panels and sort of exist outside in the gutter area of what's going on in the actual story. And I agree. I think if, you know, you'd given this like a year or two, you might have gotten something even more experimental than what you're seeing here um, because his style evolves so dramatically over time. But I still think this catches him at a really good time for this story because it is right around that death mini. And that's exactly the kind of vertigo style that you probably want for this story. Yeah, it does have most in common with his work that I could think of with High Cost of Living, more so than Shade, which is sketchier, and Generation X, which is bigger and more super deformed when you get certain characters like M-Plate. Yeah. And I love this kind of story with how you get the little bits of each of these people who are more or less trapped and as you get to the end when you realize like are any of them even still alive or is this really Mm. a haunted house story is this the shining basically where these are all the ghosts of the overlook yeah and it's kind of fun because this is a batman comic but batman is really not in it very much He's sort of watching from the sidelines and, you know, seeing what's happening through the the windows. He's paying witness to this uh, as opposed to really being an active participant in the story. It's really about these guests and the building itself, which can be taken as a commentary on so many things. And I I think it's really successful um, in what it's trying to do. I will say, knowing Will... And maybe or maybe not having a little sample of what Will might say about this. I don't know why I would. It is 
maybe a point that knocks it down a little that nearly all of them are murderers in one sort or another. But then you get the one woman in the hotel who's just a victim. And it seems that the with the only female character in the book being a victim is a somewhat uncomfortable moment to have. She's a character who she was running away from her abusive boyfriend or husband. He catches her. He kills the guy she's running off with. And then he threatens her because when he gets out, he's going to get her. And it just seems like with everyone else being so actively vile, putting her in the hotel is a little more... It's icky. And even if she had killed the abusive boyfriend... Mm-hmm. It might have worked better, but even then, it's like that's a righteous kill. And everyone else here, you know, Studs killed his dealer. Another guy was robbing his place of employment and he kills his boss. Another guy was driving drunk and hit a baby carriage. One guy was a serial killer. And then there's this poor woman who was just trying to get away from her shitty, abusive husband. It's a strange choice for her be in here mm-hmm. if there had been either one other person someone a man who was also somewhat more innocent or if she had been a killer as well i would have felt a little more comfortable with that but it just seemed a strange sort of sour note within the story i think when i said that i liked the first story the best out of the three I probably surprised you given that, you know, I'm such a Chris Pachalo head, but I do think that what maybe brings this story down is exactly what you're talking about, which is that instead of, you know, maybe honing in on just a a couple of key lost souls here, it has too many characters for the page count that it has. And if this had been a longer, maybe like trade paperback or like a standalone graphic novel, something along those lines. And we got a chance to kind of investigate the backstories of these characters for more than a page or two or a panel or two. I think there's room here for, for more depth, but unfortunately we're getting kind of stereotypes. We're getting, you know, the junkie, you know, we're getting the drunk driver. It's the, the mobster, whatever it might be. And it's like, okay, but, there's not enough time to really give any of these folks the depth they need so that when they are being tormented and tortured, we really feel why, you know, we're really involved. So I think that the concept of it, and obviously the art is fantastic, but the ultimate execution of the the script of the story, it just doesn't have enough room to breathe. On Batchat, we usually are saying that, boy, this story could have been told in two issues instead of four or Uh three instead of six. This is one instance where I would have liked a two or three issue story instead of just the one to let the world of the Terminus breathe a little. Yeah. I think it just screams for, you know, a perfect bound, maybe double sized, just 48 ish, you know, 48 pages, like just really explore the space and the, and the hauntedness of it. I think that could have been really fun. As it stands, I still think it's pretty neat and it's it's a cool experiment, especially in terms of it being in the pages of a Batman superhero comic. Absolutely. And I think on that note, it's time to 
go back over to Will and Terminus on the big board. This is a very curious story for ranking because this is one of those stories where Batman is more a force and much less a character. And this is a horror story and it's not like much else we have on this list. That's very, very, very accurate description there. This is a great little horror story. It's got one little sour note where we have this victim of kind of domestic violence who is thrown in with all sorts of other various murderers and creeps and thieves. Uh, I didn't like that kind of tone there, that narrative choice. But other than that, just a great little tales from the crypt tales from the dark side kind of little slice of horror anthology like this was definitely probably not written up as a batman comic to start with but fun absolutely fun delano is best known for vertigo work delano wrote the first most of the first 40 issues of hellblazer did a big run on animal man a bunch of Vertigo miniseries, one of the British imports around the same time as Gaiman and Morrison. Those early Hellblazer issues all have this sort of macabre tone. And Bacalo's art, while still early in his career, Bacalo Bachelot, never sure how that's pronounced. I've always pronounced it Bacalo. I think they pronounce it on Battle of the Atom is Bachelot. So Adam will have said it properly, I'm sure, or has said it properly. I'm trying not to repeat the stuff I said earlier with Adam, but this more than a lot of the stories we've done is a story I did not appreciate when I first read it at the age of 13. I didn't... Not a surprise there. No, I didn't get what this story was doing. Which made it really interesting because I knew going into a reread on this one, oh, I've read Jamie Delano. I know Delano's stuff now. I bet I'm going to really dig this one this time. And I was correct. The book of the night for me. Yes. Uh, just in terms of being a change of pace. Like this is, uh, it's uh, it's tough watching the baseball well uh fuck it not watching the baseball playoffs without uh without the yankees but this is the batman comic equivalent of a knuckleball right it's just dancing all over the place it's utterly bizarre uh, as compared to everything else and if you are a real craftsman of the knuckleball and you could really deliver it it's it's a beautiful thing to watch ball has no rotation Perfectly delivered knuckleballs, zero rotation. I think this had just a little bit of a spin on it, uh, but almost nailed it. Good read. It feels like a Vertigo comic. This feels like something out of that early 90s Vertigo. If this were to come out today, this would be a Black Label comic. Oh, for sure. It seems like you could have easily stretched this out into a miniseries or something. This is a really good idea here. 
it makes me very curious to reread a book that I remember you saying you picked up at a con, uh, the Man Bat miniseries, which was also a Delano. Oh, yeah, I picked it up, but I haven't read it yet. That'd be yeah. fun. I'd have to dig it out because, again, it's another one that I remember it being really gorgeous to look at, but not getting it. Because, again, I read this when I was like a teenager and I have a feeling like reading it now, I will appreciate a lot more what Delano is probably doing in that book. We got to do Man Bat next year for Halloween. Yeah, that's a that's a good one for next year. Some of the original Adams stories and then something more like Man Bat in a more superhero-y vibe. And then that, that would be a really strong Halloween episode. So we both, we're both saying episode or issue of the night. I don't think it cracks the top hundred just because the, the minimum Batman of it. And again, that one little sour note. So right now, 150 is the first Batman, that Thomas Wayne, Lou Moxon story. I'd probably put this above that. Yeah, I think my ceiling might be 118, player on the other side. Yeah, I, that's definitely a ceiling. While you're thinking, let me say this, the title page for Terminus, beautiful. Loved that. I think my floor is killing joke at 128 this is a mature story that is actually mature in a lot of places versus that sort of shell of maturity that killing joke has and while it does have a similar sour note in its treatment of its one female character i feel like this is doing something more successfully than what Killing Joke is trying to do. Agreed. So that's between 118 and 128. I'm thinking 121, right below Fear for Sale, another really strong one-off, but a a more Batman one-off and a one-off that says something about Batman and does something interesting with Jason Todd. Yeah, sounds good. Well, that was a thrilling discussion with Will, and we're back with Adam (laughs) for one more story. This is Or the Land of the Free, Batman, Volume 1, number 575. The writer is Larry Hama, with pencils by Scott McDaniel, inks by Carl Story, colors by Roberta Duis, letters by John Costanza, and edited by Denny O'Neill. The cover date is March of the year 2000. The banner an ultra-right-wing terrorist, has threatened Gotham's new federal building. Batman and the FBI must save the lives of all the workers before the banner brings it all down. So this, this book exists in a very interesting historical moment in the Bat titles. Okay. This, this is the first issue of Batman after the end of No Man's Land. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, no Man's Land which we've talked about the first three arcs now on the the pod for those out there who might not have heard those was a year long story that ran through all the bat titles where Gotham was basically cut off from the rest of the country. And it became this sort of feudal kingdom with all of the different Arkham villains taking parts of the city 
And the whole story is Batman and the GCPD first working at cross purposes and then together reclaiming Gotham. And so now Gotham is back and all the Bat titles are getting new creative teams. Mm -hmm. You've got uh, Shadow of the Bat ended and you've got Gotham Knights by Devin Grayson and Dale Eaglesham, which was the Bat family title. Detective Comics is the first ongoing series by Greg Rucka with Sean Martinbrow doing a detective story, obviously, with the title. And then you've got Larry Hama, best known for a lot of Marvel work, coming on to Batman with Scott McDaniel, who had just done three, somewhere between three and four years of Nightwing, on to Batman doing it as a pretty much a straight superhero comic. And this was not a well-received run. <laughs> I noticed it only lasted for seven issues. Yes. Uh, four uh, one-offs uh, and a three-parter that introduced Orca, the whale woman. Uh, a... Oh, that's Orca's first appearance. Interesting. Yes, okay. That is Orca's first appearance. Oh, geez. The thing about this run is that I feel like Hama Hama writes a fun superhero comic. Hama has always written a fun superhero comic. Sure. But I don't know how much he got Batman and the Batman of this era specifically. I don't think he gets Batman at all, given what I'm reading in this one issue. So (laughs) we should talk about that. Yeah. You know? I was just going to say, like, we talk about Hama almost exclusively on our show about his Wolverine run, you know, but if you ask the larger comics world, what do you know about Larry Hama? They're going to say G.I. Joe, right? And because that is one of the most famous comic runs that lots of kids read when they were growing up in the 80s. And it is funny because I read this issue and I was like, oh, Larry Hama is trying to put Batman into like a G.I. Joe story. That's what this feels like, right? G.I. Joe or Wolverine protecting the helicarrier from Nuke. Maybe. Yeah. Nuke is the first character that I thought of when I started reading the issue and was introduced to Banner. Banner very much feels like the Marvel character Nuke. He's got the flag motif. He's got the blonde crew cut, the army crew cut. He's waving around giant guns. He's a big muscly dude with no shirt on. The comparison is apt, right? It's right there. And credit to Hama. The Banner is a character who's only appeared in this issue and in an arc on Catwoman shortly thereafter. Okay. He's a character that... I kind of think would work really well right now. Sure. He has become much more relevant since, oh, I don't know, January 6th, 2021. Mm -hmm. This guy is a right-wing militia whack job who's sitting here talking about the Constitution. And I love the one thing, the one moment in this issue that I absolutely thought hit perfectly is the last page where at the beginning you see him and you hear all these people with their you know fists in the air chanting banner and then you get to the final page after he's been foiled and you see that oh all those people yeah they were mannequins 
and it's just a recording. Uh, Uh And I think that that feet of clay is very apt for a lot of the stuff we see with the way things like QAnon and similar militia movements wind up working. I mean, you, yes, you you still have those QAnon people down in Dallas waiting for JFK Jr. to come back. Sure, sure. But there's there's a equivalence that you can make to a character like this in something like the Proud Boys. So I think that the character definitely would work probably very well in the 2020s, let's just say. That said, when I think of Batman, I don't often think of him as someone who is working... And this may just show my ignorance to the context of the books at this time, but I don't often think of him as someone who is an active protector of the FBI. I think of Batman as the guy who like does appreciate a little bit of police teamwork if it suits his ends, but he is ultimately a vigilante. So to see him here team up with Agent Leary and a SWAT team, you know, to try and prevent this terrorist attack on their headquarters, it just didn't strike me as like in character for for who Batman is. It would make more sense to me if Batman kind of tried to take Banner out on his own before it ever got to the point where we're wrestling over oil drums on a on a crane in the sky. But I can't tell if this is just me coming at it with like my little knowledge about the Batman or whether I'm reading it correctly. You are absolutely reading it correctly. That's oh, good. one of the problems with this run is uh-huh. especially this was during a period where the various continuity changes in DC had made Batman more or less an urban legend he didn't appear in public with the justice league he was Mm -hmm. always in the background and it winds up a few years down the line in 05 in the crossover war games it's a big deal when a news crew finally catches batman on film Mm. the first real evidence of batman Mm -hmm. so this is a point where the, the bat signal is a thing, but there's people who believe that it's just a psychological tactic, that the GCPD mm. puts it up there because... To scare people. Right. He you know, interacts with Gordon. He interacts with Bullock. He interacts with Montoya. He doesn't interact with the rank-and-file GCPD that often. Mm-hmm. So him talking to some random FBI agent, like it's Wolverine talking to Dum Dum Fury. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It is not in keeping with what the books were doing at this point. Okay, yeah, I'm so glad that you're you're saying that because as I was reading it, I kept thinking like, okay, Larry is definitely still thinking about like Banner as kind of a a Cobra type villain, you know, and Batman has suddenly joined GI Joe and is protecting headquarters here and. It just seemed so strange to me to have Batman kind of strolling around the the Truman building, you know, with all the fluorescent lights over him. And it's like, Batman, that's what he's doing with his day? I don't think so. The other thing that strikes me as incredibly odd is that, as you mentioned, this is coming off of this year-long crossover. 
and it's a new creative team. This is the first issue of this creative team. It it makes no effort whatsoever to kind of establish any kind of new status quo or say, hey, here we are. We're the new Batman team. It's just like throwing you into the middle of this random story involving a villain who, frankly, is not that interesting, you know? You get one panel of Harvey Bullock. There's no Alfred. There's no Gordon. There's no Robin. Mm -hmm. There's none of that. And part of me wonders if that might have been the editorial mandate, that this Mm. is supposed to be a Batman comic versus, as I said, Gotham Knights. Each issue of Gotham Knights was Batman with a different member of the Bat family. And Rucka was doing Batman and the GCPD a lot in Detective. So Mm -hmm. I wonder if Hama was, he was not dealt a great hand. The only thing I can say is that he lasts for seven issues and then Ed Brubaker takes over the book. And Mm -hmm. it's Ed Brubaker writing Batman is kind of a gimme. And we've covered Brubaker's first arc. And just fun fact that we talked about a few episodes ago there were apparently two writers in contention for Batman when this ended. One was Brubaker and one was Brian Vaughn. Oh, interesting. And when Vaughn didn't get Batman, he instead decided to focus on something for Vertigo. And that's why The Last Man. Okay. So uh, as Will and I said, there's a universe out there in the multiverse where Brian Vaughn does a long run on Batman and Criminal starts coming out from Vertigo. Yeah, the the priorities could have switched there, you know? Listen, Hama is kind of notorious for kind of like not long-term planning, right? That is something he's acknowledged before. He is a very much kind of like a fly-by-night, page-by-page. He's just kind of going as he goes. And so you can see that here. And I, I just think that there is a basic misconstruction of the the myth here that that doesn't quite work so i think we're in agreement that this one is lacking yeah and batman also talks way more than batman usually yeah that that's worse the next i will flat out say i couldn't remember when i knew i was going to do one of these hama issues and i couldn't remember if the first issue was the banner issue or if it was mm-hmm. the one that winds up being the second issue where Batman has to rescue, I think he's like the Shah of a Middle Eastern country who's like a nine-year-old. And okay. Batman's talking to this kid and it has a very 66 sort of, you know, being jovial with this kid or very much, again, I keep thinking of Wolverine. When Wolverine has to interact with a kid somewhere, he's, you know, talking to the kid and he's trying to, you know, be interactive. Batman has numerous teen sidekicks and he still has never figured out exactly how to interact with kids. Right. So I remember that issue particularly feeling weird. And they all do. Now, I've been trying to think, I always think of McDaniel as a DC artist, but then I remember his first thing he broke out on was Daredevil. He did have a run on Daredevil, but it is interesting to see his... His style here, he's kind of going for, um trying to think of the best thing I can compare it to. I mean, it, it's got a cartoony sensibility and it kind of has like an Ed McGuinness 
Ringo, we're Ringo kind of feel to it almost. Not as good as those two artists, but sort of in that general style uh, area. And it almost has the flavor of kind of like, especially with the way this issue is colored, it almost feels kind of like an all ages book, you know, and the way it's depicted, which is at odds with the darker militia man terrorist action against a federal building you know like it feels like hama wants to kind of dredge up memories of oklahoma city or something like that with a story like this and the way that it's illustrated and the the weird dialogue between batman and and the fbi really make it seem much more lighthearted. i don't know if that was his intention but it it doesn't work and we are of course Cover date March 2000, so release date of January 2000. This story does not work 21 months later. We don't see no. this story again after September of 2001. No, of course not. Of course not. McDaniel has, I said, just come off a long run on Nightwing, which is, mm-hmm. despite being a bat title, Dick Grayson is a much more vibrant, much more light, much more acrobatic character. I mean, Batman, yeah, he swings, he fights, but Dick is an acrobat. Everything is constant motion yeah. in a good Nightwing comic. Sure. And you don't necessarily need that same thing in a Batman comic. Nightwing you know, works like Spider-Man. He dances around his foes. Batman takes the punch, blocks the punch, punches you in the head. It's a different physicality. And McDaniel gets there because McDaniel's on Batman through the end of Brubaker's run, which okay. is another 30-something issue. Oh, wow. Wow. It, okay. It so ends, he sticks around. Yeah, it ends right before Hush. And Hush is the 16th. No, uh, this is 575. It's about 30 issues because Hush starts at 608. So okay. he's on here through 607 with one or two issues off because there's there's one issue in there that it's Baker and Phillips. There's a, a one of an early Brew Baker and Phillips issue in there. But he does nice. nearly every issue in the the interim. And his style maybe his style doesn't change, but his sense of how these characters move gets mm. more solid or how Batman moves specifically as the book progresses. Yeah, to his credit, I mean, I mentioned that scene where they're kind of swinging back and forth on on this crane with the oil cans. Like, he definitely knows how to capture movement, and there's some propulsion to that scene. So, guys got chops. I just think it's at odds necessarily with the story that Hama is trying to tell, but I also think that Hama's at odds with himself in the story that he's trying to tell. <laughs> I would be fascinated to see what you could, what you'd think. The artist who takes over Nightwing after McDaniel leaves is Greg Land, but this oh God. is but w- this is early Greg Land. He okay. does Birds of Prey and then he does Nightwing. And looking this up, yeah, it's I think around issue forty is when Land takes over on Nightwing. But it's fascinating. It's one of these things where I remember liking Greg Land as an artist, and then somewhere along the way, being like, "What happened to this guy?" Land <laughs> Land takes over at forty-one after okay. uh, McDaniel was the first forty issues, 
And there were a few issues, uh, an issue of Birds of Prey, uh, number eight, that I, I sit back and it's like, I, I cannot imagine that particular issue being drawn by Dr- Greg Land now. Because oh, it's no. this Birds of Prey number eight, which has a gorgeous Brian Stelfreeze cover, as I recall, is this issue, and it's just Dick Grayson and Barbara Gordon on their first date as adults. And it's this very quiet issue of just these two people out being together and it is not a comic that greg land could draw now yeah i'm looking at some of this page work and you know there's hints of where he will be what he will become but there's also some actually you know there's some solid stuff happening here depending on on which uh, page i'm looking at so he's actually drawing versus well yeah like i saw a, a panel of a teenager sitting on the edge of a bed and i'm like I didn't know Greg could do that. So <laughs> congratulations. Yeah. Um, oh boy. Yeah. It's interesting to see some of those creators who the difference between their work on a bat book and an X book. Sure. And there yeah. aren't a huge, I, I, I was trying to think of other creators who had done substantial runs on bat comics and X comics. The only other one I had thought was, you know, Wolver- Greg Rucka had done that a couple years of Wolverine, and uh-huh. he's much better known for all of the Batman work he did between Detective and Gotham Central. I can't remember what it was, but it was something after we had set this. In one of the past couple weeks of Battle of the Atom, I was, something had occurred to me where I was like, oh, that would have been another interesting Michelle Simone has a lot. I mean, we just talked about, oh, oh yeah. well, one thing that hasn't done a ton of internals, but Brian Stelfreeze has done a metric shit ton of Batman covers. Oh, okay. The yeah. first, I think, 49 issues of Shadow of the Bat are all oh, wow. uh, Stelfreeze covers. And I'm going to send you... Uh, a link to a piece and I might my best to put this piece of art in the show notes somewhere. Okay, okay, the one place I can find it is here. So check out this poster because this is McDaniel with Stelfreeze going over a McDaniel layout. Oh, interesting. This poster was on my bedroom wall. That's a cool poster, man. Yeah, this was... That's cool. I mean, it you know, was on wall for years, so it did not make it out of when I moved out of the house for college. But yeah, for our listeners who can't see this poster, uh, Batman is coming towards the camera on the left side of the poster on one foot on the bat cycle. And his other leg is kind of draping off the side with his cape curling over into the right side of the panel with all of these bats flying sort of in between him and the cape. And pretty rad man that's that's a great thing for your wall there's there's a lot of stealth freeze batman as well because i just remember thinking about it when you were talking about that domino mini series a couple weeks ago as we're recording on boda yeah we just talked about domino volume two which we both absolutely loved so uh that's really cool that he's had that that cover run because he's extremely talented there's no doubt about it unfortunately 
that was a way better comic than Batman 575. So uh, I am sure that you and Will will probably not rank this as high as the other two stories we talked about today. I can pretty much guarantee that as we put <laughs> the land of the free Batman 575 on the big board. Matt, I'd like to stop the game. Okay. This is a, a this is a comic. Oh, I was going for a 21 reference there. I got oh. out of my I got out of my hermetically sealed isolation booth and <laughs> anyway. I you know the, the the 21 revival should have lasted longer. That was a that's a fun game. Yeah. You know, now that you said it, it clicked, but it took it it yeah. Larry Hama is a fine writer in general. He is. His... He uh he got me some points at bar trivia the other night. Really? Yeah, current events question. Joining Skybound Entertainment, this comic book writer is con- going to be able to continue one of the longest runs on uh, a non-superhero comic. Uh, he mispronounced his name, but I was like, oh, G.I. Joe. But his Batman was not particularly well regarded for- during his whole seven issues on the title. I can see that. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that he's in some ways writing Batman as Wolverine, as he had had a long run on Wolverine and Wolverine's sort of bantering relationship with various federal and government agencies that he has had, has had to work with Nick Fury and shield and various Canadian organizations comes through here, which is not a Batman thing. No, I, I had a random question for you. Uh, and all of these things are better than talking about this book. Was this the first issue and maybe only issue with this particular trade dress? No, they used this trade dress for a while, but they didn't do the the stark covers that really just Batman face cover makes that trade dress stick out more. Hmm. Interesting. As Adam and I were talking about earlier, I mean, this is the first issue out of No Man's Land. Like, this is first Batman issue after No Man's Land ended. Eesh. So, kind of not what you want here. This is supposed to be the Batman as superhero comic. So, Hama was given the assignment that was a Larry Hama assignment. It's just, I don't think Hama got Batman as a character. I mean, the only thing to me that's interesting in this story, and it's like 20 pages of just action and government bureaucracy and like plots and counterplots, the last page where you see Banner spouting off his bullshit to a tape recorder in mannequins. I'm like, that was a good turn. We should have had more of that storytelling than just like, oh, this bomb plot and these oil drums that are swinging in the air back and forth for five pages was not very interesting banner shows up once more in a catwoman story and that's it which is kind of a shame as i think it's a character that would especially work now or would have worked since oh i don't know 2016 really well yeah, as just like this phony, baloney populist with no support who just manufactures the appearance of support. Kind of an interesting concept, but again, it's not really fleshed out here. 
So, I mean, I, I'm looking towards the latter quarter to third of the list. It's not problematic. It doesn't fall in that area that starts around 300, where everything from 300 on down, frankly, everything from 298 on down is just painful. Yeah, that's uh, that's truly the ass end of the list. Uh, I think the ceiling here is definitely 259. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Definitely not higher than that. I'm... I'm thinking a little below that. I probably, I would probably wind up rereading this again before Mr. Wayne goes to Washington at 268. Yep. And I like Clash of Symbols. I know it was not one that you like, but I enjoy it. It's another one-off and it still works better than this and is much more Batman than this. So I'm thinking new 268 right above Mr. Wayne goes to Washington. Works for me. Thank you so much for stopping by. Will and I are both grateful that you were able to come on by. Why don't you tell people about Battle of the Atom, the other stuff you're doing, where they can find you online, all that stuff. Yeah, sure. So Battle of the Atom comes out every Monday, and essentially we're doing the same thing you're doing here at Bat Chat. We're just doing it with X-Men comics. Uh, We've been doing it for over six years now and we're up to over 825 stories i think on the on the big list that we have so uh we we are just continuing to carry on and if people want to kind of follow along obviously you can go over to comicsxf.com you can go to patreon.com slash battle the atom and you can follow me on a variety of different social media um i'm on instagram adam wreck i'm on blue sky adam wreck and if you follow me on whatever the heck Twitter is now, uh, I am Arthur Stacy. So, you know, we hope that uh, you'll tune in to sort of, you know, Will and Matt's uh, sister show over here on the Comics XF Network. And uh, Matt, thank you so much for inviting me over. This was a really fun experiment taking me out of my comfort zone. So this was a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you, Adam. We'd like to thank our Patreon backers, Dan Grote, Josh Wheel, Mrs. Abigail Hartbaum, Asimov Fangirl, Tony Thornley, Sam Hopper, John Wickham, Robert Secundus, Tim Rooney, Sergio Sragioli, David Wheel, Alexander Wheel, and Matt McThorne for their support. You can follow this podcast on Twitter at Batchat Comics, and the show is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music slash Audible, and on Comics XF, where new episodes drop every Thursday. You can support the podcast on Patreon at patreon.com slash chat with Matt and Will, where you can get shout outs, bonus content, pick a story, and even come on the show. If you want to hear more of my ramblings, mostly about the three C's, comics, cinema, and cats, you can follow me on Twitter at mattlaz 1013 and Will at Will Nevin. Be sure to visit ComicsXF at comicsxf.com or at ComicsXF on Twitter for our weekly Friday Bat Chat roundup of new Bat Books. For my other show, WMQ&A, my longtime best friend, Dan Grote, and I interview comics creators, retailers, publishers, journalists, and other related tradespeople, as well as all the other stuff Will and I are writing. And stay safe out there, folks. Gotham is not a place to be after dark.